Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. Hi all, welcome back to Book Rising and Radical Publishing Futures. I'm your host, Meg Ehrenberg, and I'm here in the studio today with Fazila Jiwa, who is a freelance writer and editor with interests in social justice and radical politics, and who is also acquisitions and development editor for the Nova Scotia-based independent press, Fernwood Publishing. Welcome, Fasila. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time to chat. Um, so the, the Radical Books Collective got connected to Fernwood through the Radical Publishers Alliance, which I know you've been very active in as a, um, as a press. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit of the of the story of of how Fernwood got started, or or how you first got involved uh, with Fernwood. I imagine um, you weren't there right at the founding in 1992. No, <laughs> I was very young in 1992. But I started at Fernwood um, in 2017, so just five years ago, and. Um, it's had a lot of changes since I've been involved. So uh, I kind of feel like in a way, uh, I'm a part of this kind of new iteration of what um, what the press is now. Um, but yeah, it was founded 30 years ago uh, by Errol Sharp, who is still around and still editing and still doing all of the amazing things that he does. My kid calls him socialist Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of gives you it but basically he started the company um I think it was a distribution company first and so and sales so he would go around doing you know direct sales in the hallways of universities you know talking to scholars because it was mostly academic books and um a few times he said that uh some of the people who he's talking to were saying, I wish that there was a book like this that I could teach with. I, this part is missing, you know, in this field. And he would say, well, why didn't you write it then? <laughs> and then publish that book. And actually based on that, the successes of those first kind of one-off books, that's how it became, Fernwood Books became a Fernwood Publishing. And then there was a distribution arm, which recently has closed down. Um, we know, which is sad because that aspect of the publishing industry is really important as well to, uh, in terms of having a radical anti-capitalist approach. But um, it's also been really good to focus on, you know, the acquisitions and editing and production of the books. And I know that, um, you know, as you said, Fernwood sort of started out uh, focusing on academic texts, on on uh, scholarly texts, and has kind of expanded from there into um, broader general audiences, and even into uh, fiction as opposed to nonfiction. Is that right? I mean, so right. part of the yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, um, the fiction. We have a literary imprint called Roseway Publishing, and that's where fiction and creative nonfiction, even poetry some children's books, um, that's where that kind of takes place. Um, although I'd say that um, 
now really we're we're starting to spend more time on um, the acquisitions and editing aspect of those kinds of more literary texts mm -hmm. whereas fernwood um the main group it's mostly uh it i think that it, it used to be very focused on academics as you say but these days and i feel like this is um you know, we've, we've gotten more interested or more um, engaged with trade or non-specialized audiences. And um, I think partly that's because, you know, the, the desire of people for people who are not specialists for this kind of critical information has been growing with, you know, the clusterfuck of the world <laughs> also growing. So, um, I think that's part of it. And then another part of it is, you know, I'm, I'm really interested personally in um, making these kinds of critiques accessible. And that means language should be accessible and not jargony. And they should be shorter than, you know, a giant tome of a textbook because, or they should be, um, they can be multi-genre because, you know, different different ways of writing get to different audiences. So I'm very excited about that personally, and I'm really fortunate that Fernwood is, is also interested in that. So um, yeah, there's been some changes in that regard as well. But of course, the academic um, books that we produce are still kind of the main mainstay of, of the publishing company. So, so what does that acquisition process look like now? I mean, are you still <laughs> sort of chatting with academics and asking them what they want to see and then telling them to write <laughs> write books about it? Or actually, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, I think well, we kind of find books two ways. Um, for the first way is through acquisitions, and I would say um, we have. Uh, I think the editors in Fernwood, I think, have really strong relationships with their communities um, locally, but also, um, you know, I would say nationally, internationally. Um, I think we're all pretty active in um, movements and struggles. And so that kind of creates um, a natural a relationship with the people that we want to write with and who we want to read our books. So um, we go to a lot of public events. We go, we put on public events. We um, go to conferences. You know, um, we read very widely, um, not just in academic journals, but you know, radical magazines or um, lots of doom scrolling on Twitter, <laughs> which um, you know has. I think during the pandemic, the acquisitions process has moved a lot more online, mm -hmm. but it hasn't been so bad, actually. It's been, it's, it's really, I think, expanded access for a lot of people. So um, that has been, I found really great. Um, and then the other way that we find books or that books come to us, I guess, is through submissions, cold submissions. Um, we get about between the literary imprint Roseway and Fernwood, um, we get about 600 cold submissions a year and we're able to publish approximately 30 books a year. So um, 
I would say <laughs> the process of kind of going through that is, um, it's a bit more hit and miss than, you know, direct acquisitions um, because it's someone who we don't have a previous relationship with. Um, and for that, I would say that we look for things that are, um, you know, I, I kind of feel like weird saying new because that, you know, this original work uh, is, I feel like sometimes fetishized in the publishing industry. Um, whereas really what we're looking for is um, a different, not necessarily new take on um, existing information. So um, an underheard perspective, I would say, on on challenging, critiquing, uh, and pushing the status quo. Um, yeah, often that kind of cutting edge thinking comes from the margins. So we publish a lot of um, work by, and we work very, uh, I think we have a very, um, strong editorial process and so it's not it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have uh, experience in writing or know anything about publishing to be able to work with uh, an indie press and with Fernwood and you know specifically because um, editors will will support you in that process and I've done that several times so um, there's kind of there, there's kind of a bunch of different <laughs> kinds of books that we publish. And I think that they all, what they all have in common is that they, um, they, they, I would say, understand the possibility of transformation. And I think that's what, um, that's what, what makes me passionate about the books that we publish. I know I noticed in your in your bio that you're also doing some freelance developmental editing and it did make me wonder whether or not you're um, you're sort of entering the process a little earlier with with some authors and sort of developing ideas in 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 kind of coming into their own as um, as first time authors in that in the course of that acquisition process. Yeah, actually, I started out with Fernwood as a freelancer, and um, I don't do it as much anymore because, um, well, really for personal reasons, I have, a, I have a kid now who's young and don't have that much time. But really, I'm just interested in um, in radical books, <laughs> and um, as you are That's too, <laughs> and. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think Fernwood is a good place for me in that way as well, um, because it's just amazing to find a publishing company that um, in that um, has the same kinds of goals that I do personally. I, I know that uh, Fernwood has a particular interest in Aboriginal studies and has published a number of First Nations authors, and I wonder if you could talk at all about that aspect of how Fernwood is shifting or at least deviating from kind of mainstream publishing norms in Canada? That's a juicy question. <laughs> um, I think um, in terms of Indigenous writers, um, we have 
I think developed quite a good relationship, a good reputation for having respectful collaborative editing relationships um, with Indigenous writers. Uh, in Canada, I think, you know, there's some, there's definitely a um, increase in uh, interest and in Indigenous writing. And that's in general an, a great thing because, you know, this group has been so underrepresented in this settler colonial nation since the beginning and publishing itself has been, you know, a nation building endeavor on top of, over top of already existing vibrant mm -hmm. cultural forms of, um, you know, storytelling. So there, there's a tension there, I think. Yeah, I hope that it's not, um, that it continues, that it deepens, that there is a diversity of voices and not just what people want to hear. For our part, um, we don't have an Indigenous editor on staff. Uh, we will definitely be, we are working toward that. We do work with um, freelance development editors and copy editors and designers and the whole, um, the whole process involves Indigenous people, especially if it's a text by Indigenous uh, authors. Mm -hmm. So it's an area I think that um, publishing in Canada has been working really hard to address in, in, with varying success, I would say, across, across um, the industry. Yeah. But I think, I think it's safe to feel kind of proud of the relationships that Fernwood has been able to build. I can give an example of uh, one book that we recently published called Lowe's um, Biography of Doug Knockwood, who is a Mi'kmaq elder. Um, and the process of that, of writing that book, he is gone now, but um, throughout the process of writing that book, it took years and years. And it's because uh, the editor and the author developed this long-term relationship so that the book could, um, could be as accurate to the experience of hearing that the Doug Knockwood stories as possible and that it was a you know mutually respectful relationship so hmm, I'm also interested in hearing you know what what other publishers have been doing and thinking in this regard yeah I mean since you mentioned the um the challenge of of marketing critical texts or, or texts that that uh, um, that might not be all entirely celebratory. I wonder if we could shift to talking about about readership a little bit. Um, I think the Fernwood tagline has something about critical reader critical books for critical readers or something <laughs> something along yeah. those lines. Yeah. Um, and I'm just curious what what critical readers means to you. How you know how you characterize um, Fernwood's readership and 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 where they're found. Where do you find them? Um, you know what is uh, what does Fernwood's marketing look like? Hmm, that's a really good question. I feel like you know the the people who I'm an editor at Fernwood, so um, the people who do the marketing in Fernwood would 
have so much more to say than I would. But um, in general, I would say that the, our main audience is still an academic audience. That's kind of the bread and butter of this um, work. We publish a lot of um, textbooks, like supplemental texts, especially where, um, especially in fields, I would say that are traditionally quite conservative, mm. uh, like social work or um, sociology or um, you know political economy in general. So that's, I think, a really important uh, intervention. And that's the, the beginning of what uh, Fernwood has been and has continued to be throughout, has been kind of trying to provide that critical take on, um, you know, in, in a space in the university, which is <laughs> colloquially known as the ivory towers, right? It's not an accessible space. Right. And so um, to, destabilize that a little bit with um with texts that are affordable mm -hmm. especially for students you know we try to keep our textbooks way way less than than what a normal you know regular multinationally published textbook would cost and that's because of access so um like i said before i think that this audience is expanding because of people's general interest in having access to this kind of understanding. You don't have to be a student to be interested in prison abolition, right? Okay. So um, I think that's the other uh, audience that we have, which are people who are doing this work um, and who are affected by these, um, the issues that we publish about. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of readers who are activists, we have a lot of readers who um, are professionals in the fields um, and um, also an increasing trade presence, I would say. You, you mentioned how, um, how sort of re reaching potential authors has changed uh, in the era of social media. Um, and uh, and particularly during the pandemic, maybe. But um, how else have things changed for Fernwood in the in the age of digital publishing? I mean, has it all been net net positives for the press as things have shifted to ebooks and you know digital ordering and and on demand printing and all those kinds of things? Um. I would say it's definitely not all, there are some positives. Um, I think that for every every positive that I'm thinking about, there's also kind of a opposing um, challenge. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, the pace, you know, the pace is so much faster with digital publishing than print publishing. Um, and so with that comes expectations to have all of the information about your book on the internet as soon as possible in all of the different um, venues. So that really, I think that pits us against um, larger publishers in a way that um, is not always positive, but it also gives us access to um, worldwide audiences like in in a way that we never had before as well and then when we talk about digital publishing i think about two things i think about um accessibility again mm -hmm. um 
you know, there's born accessible texts and we're, we're working really hard to, um, to catch up with that because we hadn't done uh, a lot of digital publishing before the pandemic, before this demand for, um, for access, um, which I think in general is a really good thing. Um, you know, so we're thinking about how, you know, what are the best practices in writing alt text, for example, how can it be an enhancement rather than something that's understood as like an extra tack on kind of thing. So the alt text is engaging and just, you know, hilarious or beautifully written in the same way that the text itself would be, right? So it's, it's part of the text as opposed to something extra. So yeah. these kinds of thinking are the kind of thinking that I think digital publishing enables around accessibility is very exciting. Um, and then the other thing I think about, which is kind of a sticky topic, is copyright, because yeah. it's sticky for me because I, you know, I'm I'm very sympathetic to the idea of the Creative Commons and to have information sharing, especially radical and um, challenging. Uh, critiques of the status quo. I think that should be available. But at the same time, you know, we're, we are an anti-capitalist company working in a capitalist market. And so it is, I think it's necessary for us to, um, like I, I just understand deeply that writers and indie publishers and everybody who works on those books still need to get paid for the work that they're doing to be able to continue doing it. So, you know, we have tried to sort through these issues about digital rights management in a way that kind of balances both um, the need to share information as well as the need for um, fair compensation uh, for create, creating this work. Um, and especially because, you know, as you talked about, you know, in the LitHub article that was recently published, it, if we don't have that kind of, uh, if we don't, if we're not able to um, financially float indie publishers and radical authorship, then the diversity of the kinds of information we're getting will be greatly diminished because multinationals are just not going to be able to, to create that and may not even have an interest in that, right? So we try to do lots of things that, um, you know, in terms of trying to get the information out there that, you know, we have some, some creative solutions that we're still working on. I'd be really happy to hear what other people have been doing too. Um, try to offer lots of free copies. Like for example, we've got, done a lot of texts on uh, policing and prisons recently, and all of those texts are hopefully going to be in prison libraries. You know, mm -hmm. those are the people who they are written about and for, so they should have access to them. So kind of examples like this are where we're trying to, um, circumvent uh, this uh, tension a little bit um, at the same time as, you know, expecting the professors who read our books to pay for them.
you know, people who have stable jobs and are able to participate in that kind of market um, should. Yeah. Yeah. And and enable those other those other kinds of efforts of the publisher, right? Now. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think you know that if it, you know, if we make a buck, that's going to be put toward creating another book. Right. Hopefully like an earth shattering one, you know? <laughs> right. Right. I mean, speaking of, of uh, multinationals and corporate giants, um, one question we've been asking all the publishers we've talked to is how you how you deal with or how you address these big, enormous, <laughs> these behemoths of, of Amazon and, and Barnes and Noble and so forth, the, the sellers and the distributors that are sort of, um, you know, how do you tackle these, these kinds of giants? Yeah, this is, you know, a question for the times, right? They, I think a lot of people are dealing with it. I've heard of, you know, publishers I very much admire part of the Radical Publishers Alliance where they have just decided not to deal with Amazon. Mm -hmm. You know, is we haven't been able to do that at Fernwood. And um, I guess the way that we uh, deal with that is to build, again, we come back to local relationships all the time, right? So indie booksellers, uh, local booksellers to have really strong relationships with those kinds of um, distributors in our communities. Uh, I think that is a great way um, to do that. Uh, we encourage our authors not to link to their book on Amazon and instead, um, you know, either link to the publisher's page or um, direct people to their local bookstore. Um, we've done some thinking around um, trying to find creative solutions to shipping costs where, again, it's an issue of access. So the person who's in the city where the publisher, you know, where the distributor is, doesn't have more access to the book than someone, you know, in the far north who has to pay extra for shipping. So um, there's some ways I think that we can try to work um, around Amazon and uh, large distributors like that, but it's just very difficult to fight them in this um, in this environment, especially when, you know, your authors really want their work to get out there yeah. and may not necessarily understand or care about, you know, the ethics of distribution. So. Yeah. Yeah. And on the question of accessibility, it's, it's always fraught. I think, I mean, Amazon is, um, does allow for a certain, um, a certain amount of accessibility. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hard to deny. Um, so, so sort of thinking then, you know, out of all of these things we've been talking about and the overarching questions, um, what what do you think would have to change for independent, radical, non corporate publishing to thrive? Such a good question. Such a big question. Um, I feel like we could talk for like three days about this, but maybe we should. Maybe we should yeah. eat some sort of, you know. Three day workshop. I'm done. I think one of the things that we've been struggling with 
um, and thinking through recently has been um, the role of a radical publisher, a radical independent publisher uh, in, I guess, uh, I don't like to say knowledge production, but like, you know, um, creating access to understanding and ideas that are challenging, mm -hmm. challenging um, harmful structures that we live in. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that we keep coming up against is this, um, you know, a lot of writers with really radical ideas, a lot of thinkers and doers, you know, who, who are clearly against um, these kinds of harmful structures, including capitalism and um, other oppressive ways that we organize <laughs> this society, um, somehow don't apply the same critique to publishing as an industry. Mm -hmm. And it feels, it just feels like an exception, right? And maybe it's because of um, this kind of status and prestige economy, especially in academic publishing, where you, you know, your ideas are only seen as worthy if they are published by this like huge corporate publisher or the biggest university press or, and then there's this material aspect to that too, because they can offer bigger advances than an indie publisher, for example, right? So we we struggle with kind of thinking about how transformational, you know, all of the work from the words on the page to the way that it's produced should, or I mean, I would like for it to embody this kind of transformational uh, culture that we are hoping to create, create, but it just feels like a bit of a, um, a challenge for us to explore with people, um, the people who we write with and the people who we'd like to write with, mm -hmm. publish with. And um, yeah, I guess it's just, um, I think that radical politics often see the page because indies take chances on new and innovative radical material and when it becomes mainstream in a way i think of that as a job well done you know that's kind of the goal right but at the same time it really feels a bit tender i would say or a bit sore to see a publisher you know who never gave a fuck about these issues to begin with make tons of profit off of it when you know that if we were the ones making the profit off of it we would be using that to make more make more books and like support more authors, you know, especially the ones who are not going to be picked up by a mainstream press. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a uncomfortable topic mm -hmm. I would say, because I understand, you know, I understand both, kind of like the um, digital marketing and copyright issues. I, I understand both sides and, Often when I think about, personally, when I think about things as both sides, I always understand that there's, you know, the binary is always a hint that there's something else there, right? Because maybe that's too abstract, but like there must be ways around this. And I think that a lot of us have found ways around this and just 
dealing with um, what we do, you know, as related. What I'm talking about is, again, being an anti-capitalist company in the form of a company in a capitalist environment, it poses a lot of these problems because there is various forms of capital, you know, money, cultural capital that um, we all need to live with and um, figure out for ourselves. So it's just some of the thinking aloud um, that I have been uh, doing myself and with a few trusted colleagues um, in the past. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's true even for us at Radical Books Collective, we're so committed to having our conversations be accessible. We want book clubs to be a free space. And then also <laughs> we wanna be able to keep doing what we're doing. Um, and so kind of finding the line between, um, you know, what's, what's, what allows us to sustain the work um, without, sort of, um, you know, recreating these uh, these harmful structures that that exclude um, and and limit and um, yeah yeah absolutely mm -hmm. um, well tell us what's what's up and coming at at Fernwood that our listeners should definitely have an eye out for what should we be reading. This is a hard question. <laughs> I like all these, but I'll talk about two that I had a hand in um, in working on. So the first one is uh, called Abolitionist Intimacies by L. Jones. L. Jones is um, a poet, a teacher, um, and a prison justice activist, uh, longtime you know black feminist who has been active in her community and um this book it's just really close to my heart because um it has all of the things that we've been talking about it's very accessible it's multi-genre so it's um poetry which she does as spoken words so there will be you know um recordings of her reading the book uh i think there's gonna be an audiobook too and um that it's scholarly because there's parts of it that are scholarly um, because a lot of the field of writing around prison justice has been kind of theoretical and so she takes that on as well in the form that it is uh, requiring <laughs> and uh, there's also some journalism and like as you know narrative essay style work so um, and all of it it just is so personal and it's so um, material, like she describes a lot of her experiences um, going into jails and she has taken um, care to ask the people who she's writing about if they want to be featured in this book and when they say yes, it's just so powerful the, the way that she's able to think about their experiences but also her experience as an advocate um, and how, like one of the, the last chapter is called What is Desire to the Abolitionist? And so she also grapples with some, some of the themes that, you know, we've been talking about in this conversation around wanting nice things and, you know, want, wanting to have a comfortable life. And then at the same time thinking, you know, 
how can you, how can we, what role does pleasure have in this kind of work and, um, and joy and all of these kinds of things? How does that relate to our um, imbu being imbued in these systems? Um, and how does it relate to our freedom? So uh, it's really powerful, really beautiful book. Um, and yeah, I encourage everybody to read it. Uh, and the other one, which is very different, <laughs> it's called Frequently Asked White Questions. And uh, the, which the acronym for that is F-A-W-K-Q, so FOC. And so the introduction is called For FOC's Sake. <laughs> it's, very, it's very humorous and um, accessible. So it's very short, really small, kind of cute little pink book. And it is about, it's basically, um, a primer for uh, people who are interested in conversations about race but feel you know awkward or embarrassed or maybe someone has asked you the same question maybe a racialized person and someone's asked you the same question 20 times and you're sick and tired of answering it so this is the book that is like it's meant to be very accessible part of the the thing that makes it accessible is that there's hardly any jargon when there is jargon or specialized language there's a glossary Mm -hmm. There's a reading list, um, and the authors are really funny. So the way that this book came about is that um, the two authors, who are uh, Ajay Parasram and Alex Kasnabish, who are professors here in Halifax, where I live, um, they kind of embarked on this public education um, project, which they understand as a de-radicalizing project mm -hmm. for white people who um, might feel embarrassed or shy to ask these questions or maybe they've been you know they've said the wrong thing and been shouted down about it or something like this so they their their space was called safe space for white questions mm -hmm. um which is kind of a cheeky <laughs> thing that they've done um but during the pandemic it it stopped and then we ended up doing it online and um so it's a live monthly show on youtube where people can ask questions anonymously and they will answer them without any you know any um it's their opinions but they're very open about it so it's not like they're thinking that their thinking is the correct way but it's just a space to you know have conversations about this and while we were doing the online sessions over two years, I got, I kind of got frustrated because I was thinking the same questions keep coming up. Like it's the same, you're answering the same kinds of questions every episode or over the course of them. And so um, they responded to my frustration with this very wise um, understanding of, you know, this repetition is the way that we understand things. And the fact that there, you know, people are asking the same kinds of questions means that these are the key themes that people want to think about when it comes to race. And um, then I was like, why don't, why don't we do a book about that? <laughs> so we're doing the top 10 themes of questions that um, they've been asked on the show and they've just distilled it into like, you know, five to eight pages per chapter. Each chapter is a different question. Um, and it'll be paired with the show going forward in September. So 
um, that's going to be really exciting as well. That sounds great. What's an example of, of one of those questions? Like what, just one, one of the themes that continually comes up. Um, can you be racist against white people, for example? Right. Or, you know, for another example, what, what's the difference between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation? Mm. Kinds of things that I think um, everybody struggles with, um, regardless of your race, really. Like, it is, the book is directed toward white people, um, but I think it will be useful to anyone. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about it as um, a, a couple of the, the um, ways in which they talk about it is, is not necessarily about white fragility, but about building racial resilience, mm. which I really liked because um, that's really what we're, we're getting to, right? So you can have, you feel prepared to have conversations about race and to act in anti-racist ways without feeling that kind of limiting um, or scary, you know, emotion of, of being, um, you know, of fear. Act or something, yeah. Yeah, it's fear and it's, being offended or you know so yeah it's this is an example of like um, a book that we're going to be it's a trade book it's a general audience book and probably I think it might be used in some courses as well you know as an academic book but it's not meant to be an academic book it's meant to take these kinds of conversations around racial politics that are happening in activist spaces and scholarly spaces and and translate them into a way that everybody can understand. Awesome. Azila, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much. I'm really, really excited to be part of this and I just support the work that you guys do so, so much. So anything I can do to, to help it out, I'm, I'm down. <laughs>